So first of all, I would, uh, as a geneticist, I would knock on the door of a nutritionist and microbiologist to please allow us into the conversation of microbiome and swine production, livestock production in general. I think we have some contribution that we can make. Uh, we do acknowledge that anyway, our portion of variants explained as we like to consider it is small as compared to the changes in diet and everything that we grow with it. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. This episode's sponsored highlight is about MS Shippert. Want to save up to 25% in labor time when cleaning your barns? With MS Top Foam Power, you effectively remove all historical pollution. MS Top Foam Power ensures the surface is perfectly clean and ready for disinfection. Find your dealer at www.msgold.eu. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Francesco Tiazzi, who is a professor at the University of Florence. Hello, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm very good. Well, we're glad to have you on today, Dr. Tietzi. And um, I think before we get any further, I'm going to have you do a little bit more of an introduction about yourself. Okay. Well, then, first of all, thanks for this invitation. My name is Francesco Tietzi, and right now I work at the University of Florence, Italy, which is where I'm actually from. I graduated from here. And I'm from Tuscany, from a little bit outside of the city, just an hour drive. I uh, grew up on a farm. We believe my parents were not farmers. We had a hobby farm. We had a little bit of everything, so we would make money or nothing. That was a good experience growing up. And then going to university, I wanted to study agriculture, and so I picked a major, and then I went into animal science, and then I moved to Padova from getting a PhD in animal breeding and genetics. During the period, I spent a visiting time at MC State, and I enjoyed it so much so that I later moved there for a postdoc, started to work on swine genetics, actually, since my PhD thesis was on dairy cattle genetic evaluations. And then I like North Carolina, and so I started... I progressed my career there, I became a research assistant professor with a major focus on swine, and up to some point, I got the opportunity to come back to square one, University of Florence, and that's where I've been here for a bit longer than a year. Okay, great. Well, it sounds like quite an adventure you've had so far and changes in your career, and I, I think that's one thing we always hear from our speakers is the maybe a path that they didn't quite expect and this is where they're at, but they're enjoying obviously where they're at in the moment. So um, 
you know, as we were visiting ahead of time, you are an animal breeding geneticist and um, you kind of want to talk about something maybe a little bit outside of the wheelhouse of animal breeding and genetics, but something that we all should be considering. And that's that evaluates or revolves around the microbiome of the animal. And we've talked a little bit about the microbiome before with our listeners, but maybe um, let's just have you kind of revisit that and talk. Let's start there. Let's let's talk about what the microbiome is, and then we'll jump into more what you're doing. So, yes, well, as, a, as a geneticist, I should first of all say that, of course, the microbiome field is an ours, right? We should deal with the genes of the pig or the cow or whatever animal we're studying, uh, we, we have to acknowledge that actually they belong to the field of microbiology. Or uh, with the animal science, probably nutritionists, are those that start, started studying microbiome earlier, and so that's been more research done there. However, uh, lately, thanks to the research we started at uh, North Carolina together with Dr. Malteca, my colleague there, we start seeing that basically the microbiome, so the whole genome of the microbes that inhabit the intestines of the pig specifically, could somehow be considered as an extension of the genome of the pig. Uh, and again, my apologies to any microbiologist there or to any nutritionist because you're thinking that a little bit outside of the box here. But if we just consider even just the composition, of the microbiome, so the different abundance, uh, the abundance of the different species, the inhabit the intestinal tract, or even better, the genes that they carry and express, we can see that there is an impact on the phenotypes that we're studying, of course, right? We all know that, but also that the host genome exerts some sort of control on the microbiome. And so that's where we started to uh, build a link, is that any conditionality between the pig genome and the microbial genome or all the species that inhabit that. And so that's how we start. And that's very interesting. So I was, as you were talking, I was writing my notes, and that's exactly what my next question was, and you hinted to it, was really around that relationship between the microbiome and a genetic population. And, and you alluded a little bit there to the fact that the host can control at some level the microbiome in the animal. And I think that's interesting because most of us would have said that's probably not the case, that the microbiome exists based on the environment. So talk a little bit more about that, if you could, about how the host could control that microbiome. Uh, absolutely. So already in the past decade, there have been some studies about the irritability of gut microbiome in humans, right? Those were the first to be studied. It was in the mid-2010s, and that already paved the way for what was coming next in livestock. Now, we all know how the environment, say, first, first and foremost, the diet, can shape the microbiome, right? However, the pigs will come with their own heritage, to allow me the term of microbiome already, which depends on a number of things. Uh, starting from big and going to small, you know, there is vertical transmission that those are the parents 
one way or another one can pass some microbial species, actually can help some microbial species establishing the offspring. There is horizontal transmission that, of course, can be considered as environmental, pure environmental. But there is also an impact of the pig genes uh, at the genetic variation at the level of the pig in shaping the microbiome. And I will start with this example. So already thousands of years ago, we created breeds of pigs, right? We picked one pig against the other one because that pig was growing faster or was healthier. Or anyway, we liked it better than the other one, right? And so we accumulated something in those pigs that was favorable. And for a good amount of time, we thought that what we accumulated was favorable variants in the pig genome, right? The commercial breeds, Duroc, has a totally different genome composition than another heritage breed, right? That's what we thought. However... Uh, now we will just found out that, say, commercial breeds or heritage breeds have very different microbiome. So when we started selecting the animals, we were selecting favorable variants in the pig genome, but also favorable microbial composition because they were somehow connected. Either that the parents passed it by vertical transmission or was that the parents passed the host genome, right? The pig genomes by mendelian transmission to the pigs, to the offspring, and that was controlling the microbiome. Somehow now we, we see that different breeds have different microbial composition. Specifically, I think it's safe to say at this point that uh, herit an her heritage breeds will have a more diverse microbiome while commercial breeds will have a less diverse microbiome, but probably functionally better. And when I say functionally better, it's better for the function of extracting energy from the feed. Why? Well, because we wanted them to grow faster, so they had to have a more efficient microbiome. And that's what I think gives an idea on how the host and the pig genome controls the microbiome. Now, it should also be said that so far we have very few studies that compare those two kinds of breeds on the same diet, right? Let's say we have heritage breeds raised outdoor or pasture or dirt. They have a more variable diet, and therefore that they may have a more variable microbiome as a consequence of that, rather than pigs kept indoors and so on. However, even in the few studies that compare breeds different genetic background on the same diet, we see that there is some variation. We see the selection shape the microbiome of the different breeds. Yeah, so that that's actually really intriguing to me. And it, it was making me think of another question there. And it was around, as nutritionists, we feed a lot of direct-fed microbials, right? So we feed lactobacilluses and so forth, and, or lactobacilli and so forth. And my, my question is, is, well, based on what you're telling me, maybe that's not ideal. Is it, I mean, are we, are we thinking that there is potential to reject certain microbiome or microbes based on the genetic makeup of the pig? Um, it could be that 
some pigs will, will react better to the additional prebiotics or probiotics to the diet. I still think that anyways, your feeding strategies have a stronger impact than what the genetic background of the pig will have. It will still be small, right? What we're doing as geneticists is still as a small component as compared to changing the diet and so on. Uh, but we, we really don't know. We should design a larger experiment. Uh, we should. But let me, let me just make another example in humans. Uh, there are two genes that control for the expression and production of amylase, right? And um, it's been seen that depending on the gene that the, a person carries, uh, amylase will be produced or not, and therefore starch will be degraded or not by the time it arrives to the large intestines. If starch is already broken down, right, there is no much way for starch-using bacteria to thrive in the large intestine. But if the person doesn't carry the amylase genes, or somehow they don't get expressed, or anyway, there's not much amylase produced, there will be a lot of starch arriving the way it just was ingested, the larger intestines, and so those microbial species that make use of it will be able to thrive. This is an example. Are we sure about that in pigs? No, we're not there yet, at least not, not that I know, pardon my ignorance. We might one day. But I, Steve, to answer your question with a short answer, a shorter answer, I think there's room for improvement there because if we know which individual needed the probiotic or the prebiotic, we'll probably make better use of it and target uh, the individuals that actually need it rather than the individuals that probably can make it themselves. Yeah, and I think that's actually interesting because when we think about what you said, the commercial pig has less diversity in the microbial population than maybe if we're, if we're working in that field it will help narrow it down a bit because there's not as much competition. But it is still intriguing to me that the genetic composition of the pig can influence that. It does. But again, I love me to say that it's a small component as compared to the diet. Okay. Great. And again, going back to your example uh, of feeding lactobacillus, probably the lactobacillus will have a stronger effect on a commercial pig than a heritage because right. the commercial pig will have a more well-defined uh, composition and therefore it's more targeted as compared to heritage pig that has such a broad composition that changes a lot and therefore there's a lot of competition at the microbial level in the large intestine. Okay. So one of the things that I keep thinking about is then, based as a geneticist, over the years we've been selecting pigs on phenotype, right? So feed efficiency and performance. And um, and as you mentioned, we've naturally been reducing this microbiome to being very specific. So what do we do with that information now? How do I flip that mindset? So should I be thinking about genetically or using the microbiome in my genetic selection process? We could, we could. Uh, we, we're doing some work on that, uh, 
whether we can use microbiome truly as an extension of the genome of the pig. Um, and we've seen that for some traits, there could be some um, advantage there. Uh, some other traits, uh, not, not very much. We're still at that stage. Now, from an operational standpoint, what would be the advantage of using microbiome against, say, genomic selection, right? So when we get to use microbiome, for example, we need to make it feasible to be implemented routinely. Um, and so, therefore, we cannot have um, samples taken from the sequel with live animals, so we have to revert to fecal samples, fecal swaps which are a good representation of the sequel microbiome, of course, are not perfect. But still, we've noticed variability. We've seen that composition to contribute to some traits. We've seen that heritable. So we could potentially, at some point, assemble uh, the genome of the pig and the genome of the microbes and get something in a selection index that considers them all. Now, one of the advantages of the genome of the pig or the microbiome is that it doesn't change throughout life, or at least not, not as much as the microbiome would. Therefore, the sampling of the microbiome, the timely sampling of the microbiome is very important to see when, for example, it's time to get an assessment of the composition and so on. I'm thinking, for example, post-weaning. Right, imagine that's a critical time. Or, for example, the onset of puberty in gills. There's probably another time where lots of, lots of things are happening. And so we've seen that uh, sampling, timely sampling, sampling is important. Of course, what biome changes. Right. Frequently, I'm happy. Yeah, that's, that's actually very interesting to me. And so one of the other questions I came up with there as you were talking was you mentioned some traits have an advantage. Could you elaborate on what traits might have an advantage here? Uh, we've seen the microbiome to strongly impact feed efficiency, of course, right, uh, directly, and fat deposition as well. And when I'm talking about fat deposition, it's both back fat and intramuscular fat. As a consequence, the special consequence of feed efficiency, we've seen that impact growth in general, carcass growth, and resting percentage a little bit, also because probably there's something going on with the size of the intestines and so on. I'm not totally sure about that. It's hard to get precise data, of course, on the weight of the intestinal tract. Those are the trade you will see in at least. If we, when we consider the composition of the microbiome, we see we see that to be mostly impact. And they have feed efficiency and fat deposition. Now we have uh, another project with some other collaborators uh, at Purdue, USDA, and for which we're looking about heat stress. And it seems that uh, microbiome could be a good indicator of ongoing heat stress or not. Uh, while the dynamics are probably better known to a physiologist or a nutritionist, it's, it would be a great advantage to ju just take a fecal swab of a sow, for example, and see to what degree of 
stress that Saul's undergoing. Right. For example, in that case, we see microbiome more as a biomarker rather than something that has a direct influence on the tolerance. But along the same lines, so using microbiome in selection, in that case, it's more of a rapid assessment of the animal welfare status. Sure. Yeah, it's really intriguing to me. Um, one of my other questions that that's coming into my head at the moment is, so we're talking about one direction, but have we identified or have we tried to identify genes within the pig that might be regulating the microbiome? We, we've tried. We run some GWAS analysis on the data we had. We're talking about data sets from about 1,000 pigs. Uh, raised under commercial conditions and so on. Uh, and we've seen that we can target subs. Now, we probably miss all the biological validation that in humans, for example, was there, right? Like when I was making the example of the lactase on the amylase, but also the lactase is another one. There will matter. We're not there yet, but for example, we could do it and Going back to what we were saying before, we could have a genomic testing of the pig. We could have a microbiome, a, an assessment of the microbial composition, a critical point. And putting those together, we will probably go do better, more precise feeding, for example, of prebiotics and probiotics. So we, I foresee in the future to be able to put together a test like this, be more, yes, precise. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that is really fascinating to me. The other um, kind of piece that keeps popping into my head is really about the shifting. So we, we know environment can change the microbiome. We know nutrition, as you mentioned, can change disease status. And so because of that, right, many of us thought, well, the microbiome is really kind of a loose piece, right? It just, it will change however, and deviate significantly from whatever was there at birth. But what I'm hearing you say is, well, while there might be some shifts, we still expect the body to somewhat keep it within a certain certain parameter set. Is that a fair way to think about the microbiome in an individual pig? It, it should be, other than any pathology coming up, say some E. coli or someone and so on, the body of the pig should be able to keep uh, the microbial composition under control. Also because it's the it's microbes that are working for the pig, and therefore it's the pig's interest to keep it under control, uh, which of course is what, what, the, what the immune system is trying to do when it's trying to find pathogens, right? When uh, rather than seeing the also they become pathogens and so on. Uh, is there an ability of the different pigs to keep it uh, under control? Yes. Is there a differential ability between the pigs to keep it under control? Probably so. But again, probably through selection, if we had, say, an individual that weren't really able to control E. coli or salmonella, we probably selected those individuals out, right? Because we simply, by any other traits that we selected for, those individuals wouldn't make it because I wouldn't grow fast enough or because simply, or because, for example, having 
too many cases of diarrhea, the farmer will notice the reduced welfare and basically wouldn't keep the space, right? And so uh, this is general in livestock. So there's probably been some sort of selection, broadly speaking, against the individuals who were not able to keep the microbiome under control. <laughs> or at least outside of what is the beneficial microbial composition for the pig itself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that would be true, and that's an, a nice way to think about it. And I go back as you're talking about some of our more recent issues with E. coli, particularly in some of our genetic lines, and and does that then force us to think a little differently in, obviously, selection? You know, we want to look at genetic selection of the pig and maybe find some resistant pigs, but there might also be the potential there that we need to be genetically selecting a different microbiome population that then could outcompete that E. coli. And because our commercial pigs are so narrow, we've probably have missed that population. At least that's what I'm kind of hearing you say. It, it could be, but there's, I believe there's been enough selective pressure um, indirectly to select for robust pigs in general. Probably the stratification between nucleus, multipliers, and commercial farms Maybe they have not challenged the pigs so much to have carry a microbiome that would be advantageous in a commercial system since we do selection of the nucleus. We've seen that the microbial composition changes between the two systems. Um, it's hard to pinpoint why it will change, right? Sometimes the diet is kept consistent. You have a more reliable performance testing at the nucleus lab, for example. Uh, of course, the different biosecurity protocols uh, will control the horizontal transmission between the pigs and between the different batches of pigs that go after each other. Uh, in general, uh, probably somehow we, uh, we still have selected for efficient, broadly speaking, microbiome, both for growth and controlling pathogens. But maybe with the breeding pyramid, that is in pigs, we should probably better focus on, for example, uh, commercial trials to see how the different genotypes and different families within breeds will respond to exposure to pathogens. Yeah, that's a really good point because I've I've seen that before is that maybe the nucleus is not afflicted with a challenge, but the pigs that leave that farm are, or maybe some are and some aren't, and we've always kind of looked at that and said, well, again, nutrition was the same across the whole pyramid. And so why is it that this population's afflicted and this one's not? And, um, and you could do everything the same, right? Same sanitations and, and all the process, as much as you can think of the same. And so I think that's intriguing that even what we're talking about from nucleus down, the same genetic populations can express differently within their microbiome. And that can create some challenges. Yes, yes, definitely. We should always keep in mind that an individual is going to carry the, the species, the microbial species that is being able to get in contact with. If that individual is there, some microbial species out there, but that individual has never been exposed to it, is not, not going to colonize the gut, right? Simply speaking, it might seem trivial, but 
we're not going to find. Therefore, a very biosecure reproduce is, of course, a necessary thing. It's a good thing, but it's not exposing the pigs to all the potential symbionts or pathogens they will find at commercial level, right? And we think about pathogens, of course. We have a lot of issues with pathogens at the commercial level, so we're trying to keep away from the noculus, but there are also symbionts that potentially beneficial symbionts that be out there, but those pigs are not really getting in touch with that. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Very good. Well, Francesco, I could probably talk to you a lot longer on this this topic because be it definitely too. intrigues me. But our time is kind of running low, so I'm going to ask you to maybe summarize a couple of key takeaway points you would like for our listeners to have from our conversation today. Okay. So first of all, I would. Uh, as a geneticist, I will knock on the door of a nutritionist and microbiologist to please allow us into the conversation of microbiome and swine production, livestock production in general. I think we have some contribution that we can make. Uh, we do acknowledge that anyway, our portion of variants explained as we like to consider it is small as compared to the changes in diet and everything that uh, but I firmly believe that uh, there is potential in the whole genome of the microbial species to boost genetic progress, especially when it comes to, for example, animal welfare, generally speaking, right? There's, there's a lot of information in the microbiome that we cannot easily capture with the pig genomic variants. The microbiome offers a lot of opportunities because there's a lot of information condensed there. And if we can perhaps use microbiome as an indicator of stress, as an indicator of fig uh, efficiency and so on, we can assemble different different parts and we can come out with better selection indices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great, great take home point. That will be that will be my it's a request. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I love it. It's time for our famous three. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts, MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. We have a time and labor-saving product for you. AgriSlats by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With AgriSlats, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Ivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. Well, as you know, uh, we like to ask our guest speakers just a couple of common questions um, for our listeners. And the first question I'd like to ask is, do you have a a resource that you would recommend based on the topic we talked about today? Well, I have to say that when it 
came to microbiome, I, when it comes to microbiome, been reading a lot of papers on microbial ecology. Uh, and therefore, of course, I've been self-educating myself a lot. There's a lot to learn from, from a geneticist standpoint to that. Uh, however, I have to say that in animal breeding, it all boils down to the famous equations and tools, statistical tools that were put together a while ago, a few decades ago. And so we should always keep those in mind because global forward selection is still going to be based on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, I recommend some animal breeding books, like Refn, Refn Rhodes book that really helped me when I was a graduate school. Very good. How about a book that you're currently reading or have just finished that's not related to pigs or genetics that you would recommend to the listeners? So when I have time, I try to read something outside of the animal breeding. I try to read something more philosophical. I recently have been interested in some books that suggest that as we use technology, we make a lot of large use of technology, that's sort of changing our mindset, right? That's sort of changing how we think. And especially as an animal breeder, we try to make everything efficient, very objective. But are we missing something, right? Are we just be, being our mindset being shaped by the tools that we use simply because they are objective? And so we start thinking of, if something is not objective, we can't use it. If something is not measurable, we can't control it, which is true, right? We have to measure something if we want to control it, but at some point, can we just control what we can measure? So if we, can, if we can't measure it, this is going to escape us. <laughs> We're going down the rabbit hole. So yes, you are. <laughs> we should stick with microbiome. <laughs> no, that's very good. That That's definitely something to think about, and I... I do see the change in thinking process when you look at, at least when I talk to my children and some of the younger generation, it's it's definitely a different process. So I think that's actually some really good reading. Um, The last question I have for you is if you could think of someone in your life that you have defined as successful, what would be a trait about them that has allowed them to be successful? Um, I would say consistency and perseverance Uh work. Uh, as my short CV earlier has shown, there's there can be several steps moving forward, right? Sometimes unexpected, uh, which I enjoy taking, but were totally unexpected. However, whatever are the steps that we're going to take, we should always find ourselves ready for that and always be consistent and perseverant mm-hmm. in what we're doing regardless of the direction that life is taking us. Oh, that's a great one. We've heard perseverance a lot lately, so I think that that is definitely a key one for for our listeners to be thinking about. Well, I, I do see our time is up, and I have greatly enjoyed visiting with you. Uh, for our audience, again, this is Dr. Francesco Tiazzi, who's with the University of Florence. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves 
and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.